Welcome to the Cybersecurity Ambassadors Podcast. I'm Connor. I'm here with Tom. And today we have with us Ben Strout, who is the manager of pen testing for Trinity Health and the founder of DC207. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So before we get into the um, questions, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so I, my name is Ben, obviously. Um, so I'm a cybersecurity practitioner. I've been in the industry for about six years or so now um, as a cybersecurity practitioner, but I've worked in operations as part of my professional background. I've always been sort of uh, around technology and, you know, sort of obsessed with uh, stuff ever since I was young. So it's sort of a natural, uh, you know, career progression for me to kind of go into this and uh, hack all the computers. So it's uh, super fun. So was there like a specific um, moment in your career or in your life in general that made you want to go into cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, so I... You know, as I, I, I guess there wasn't really a name for it at the time, but like e- even when I was like su- super young, like maybe eleven or so, like um, I, I had already you know installed my first uh, remote access toolkit, um, and I've been you know sort of playing around with you know the insecure systems, the wild wild west of like Windows ninety five and the IRC culture and stuff like that. So it's something that's always sort of resonated me with me, and at the time there wasn't really a straight path into like, oh, this is actually, you know, potentially a job. Um, But, you know, as I kind of got older, I got involved in IT and, you know, I I found myself sort of more and more, uh, you know, uh, working in automation and sort of like hacking things, uh, using technology in ways that was never really meant to be used, which is something I'm just sort of naturally good at. Um, And that sort of just kind of led me into my eventual career in cybersecurity. So. So before you were in cybersecurity, I know you were a um, a systems administrator. So what was the transition like going from a systems administrator to somebody that hacks things for their job? It, you know, there's uh, different kinds of system administrators, that's for sure. Um, for me, um, it, it's... It's definitely different uh, in the sense that, you you know, you're not necessarily responsible for the operations and uptime of systems, right, Uh, when you're breaking into them, right? So you have a few less, um, I would say, responsibilities in that space. I don't get like, um, I'm never on call for something. When I was doing system administration work, if something died in the middle of the night, you potentially got paged for that. Um, But uh, with my particular role, I just kind of... um, I come in uh, and work when I'm when I need to, and if we break stuff, we, you know, we deal with it at that point. But we try not to break things after hours, <laughs> um, and I try not to work after hours. So, um, but yeah, so the, but I would say yeah, there's there's definitely a big difference. Um, th- there's a lot more writing, I think, in penetration testing. Um, you know, with security in general, you you have to kind of think. Um, about your users and you have to think about the impacts that your um, your roles and your controls actually have on these people. I think if you have a background in system administration or even software development, you are uniquely um, in, in a spot where you can, uh, you know, relate with those sort of problems that people might have and then, you know, look at security at, and reasonable controls through that lens and that perspective. So, um you know, I, I think earlier when I first got started in security, I worked as a, a sec ops engineer or something like that. So um, and, you know, I kind of came at it from the perspective of, 
okay, I've worked with developers, I've worked with operations engineers, I know what hurts them at the end of the day. Like, what can we do to make security less, uh, you know, painful? Um, so, I don't know, I, I think it's kind of cool, you know, from going from that to this, but um, yeah, it's, I mean, it is different. You have to, you have to think about, um, you know, what you do and how it impacts people, especially if you work in security operations. But I don't, I'm not so connected with that these days with in my role that I have. So I know that you have some degrees and certifications. How much have those helped you in your professional career? I think, um, so I think it's been really especially useful for like HR filters, you know, um, you know, I think having an education kind of can show that you have the ability to commit to something and do something for several years. And that's a really good, you know, quality and trait. But um, degrees or certifications aren't necessarily like key indicators of success. Um, but I also liken it to like this, right? There is a chance, right? If you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, you know, you might survive, right? <laughs> you don't have great odds, but you could, right? Um, similarly, you know, without a degree or without those certifications, you could probably do well in the industry. Um, but it's much better to have like the parachute, right? And the parachute is those degrees. It's those certifications. And they kind of get you passed through um, biases that people have. Some people in, you know, the hiring industry, they, they've they like, oh, I worked hard for my degree. I want the people that are, you know, coming in w working hard as well. So, it helps you get past bypass uh, uh, biases, but um, I, you know, I, I can't say that it's really helped me out a lot. I think the one thing that that was really super useful for me is the offensive security OSCP, which um, I think that one was probably one of the harder ones to get and ultimately has the most value. I think I learned the most out of that. But as far as like um, my degree program and stuff like that, it wasn't really super hands-on and I didn't really spend a lot of time doing that. So, you know, I look at like your program that you guys are involved in here at USM, you have a lot of hands-on stuff and that's like super cool. So I'm a little jealous actually. So, <laughs> so but um, does it help me out? Uh, yeah, I, I guess a little bit, but yeah. So in addition to having worked in... Um different positions and different jobs. Um, was it difficult for you to go from one organization to another? Because I know you've worked in um, several different organizations throughout your career. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, is, are you calling me a job popper? <laughs> um, it would be fair. Um, I've, I've had a few different positions over the years, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, the the reason why I've always sort of, you know, bounced around a little bit is because I get super bored. Um, you know, I think once you sort of learn the, the ins and outs and you sort of, per, I wouldn't say perfect, but you, you gain competency and, and, and um, you know, confidence in what you're doing, um, it's not so challenging, so, uh, you know, anymore. And for me, like, I love challenges and I like, I thrive on that. So um, pen testing is a little bit different in that I get to see new stuff all the time there's i mean i would say that each week that i'm doing some sort of testing i'm looking at different applications looking at different technology and um that's really engaging so but i think that the diversity and the experience is something i'd recommend to a lot of people because there are really good traits at some organizations that you'll adopt and you'll pick up and you can bring those to, to along with you as you kind of grow in your career 
you can learn really good things. And I guess you could also learn bad things. But, um, you know, having that sort of experience of seeing many different implementations and different uses of technology is really useful, especially if you're going to be doing that on a day-to-day basis. So like, and that's primarily what I do. I look at completely different hospitals with completely different, you know, web applications or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a new thing. So I don't know. I think it's, um, it's helped me a little bit to kind of like conditionalize me for the, um, you know, going from thing to thing that is pen testing. So, but yeah, so, but I've always been in a, a job for at least a year. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, I've been in a few different places, so I, I hope that, uh, I hope that answers that. <laughs> so, um, you mentioned it and explained it a little before in the previous question, but could you explain to us what, uh, penetration testing is or as, um, it's short into pen testing? Sure. Um, I guess sometimes it depends on who you ask, but, uh, generally, right. The, the, the broader consensus is that, uh, penetration testing is when someone like a, a white hat hacker, if you will, uh, goes in to a, a system, right. And tests it for its security controls to determining if it's safe against a potential bad guy doing the same sort of actions. Um, and, you know, depending on who you ask, that might be, you know, a, a lot of like vulnerability scanning that uh, that they put against a series of hosts, like that you could be testing a whole bunch of hosts and you find flags and then you attack those specific flags. Or it could be something that, you know, you do a, a dedicated deep dive, reverse engineering something um, to uh, one of the more bread and buttery kinds of things that I do uh, is web application testing. You spend an entire week looking at a web application from top to bottom and you explore that web application with test cases. It's a lot like quality assurance where you have a predefined scope of things that you want to make sure that you do um, just to determine if it's secure or not to the best of your ability, of course. Um, But yeah, so I mean, that's roughly what penetration testing is. You're, you're, you're going in, you're testing those security controls, determining if they work. And if they don't work, um, you know, you flag those. Um, and then at the end of the any sort of penetration testing, there's usually some sort of writing or some sort of report where you've kind of collected everything that you tested um, and then you output that to the customer. Um, and sometimes uh, what happens is you'll you'll spend time with the customer helping them fix those issues. Um, sometimes not. Just depends on the customer and the the, the ultimate needs of that scenario. And, I mean, if you have a pen test and there's only a few low things, that might be an acceptable risk to the the, the people that are responsible for accepting risk. So I also know that you mentioned that you worked in um, DevOps, and I also noticed that you have worked in uh, SecOps currently as well. So could you... Um, explain what the difference is between the two uh, besides the name. Uh, yeah, they're, they're two different buzzwords, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, so DevOps <clears throat> is basically the fancy new uh, word for a system administrator, right? Um, DevOps folks are primarily focused, though, on working on cloud infrastructure, typically, right? Or automating um, on-prem things, like through uh, automation frameworks. Um, so that could be through, like, the use of, like, hypervisors, like Docker containers or, like, Kubernetes, like, orchestration uh, systems, 
or you know again using uh, like AWS to roll out huge scaling pieces of infrastructure that can um, you know go up and down as you need it like good example of DevOps is like <clears throat> a system administrator not only taking uh, like maybe a package that a developer might you know you know develop right and give that to the DevOps person that person might be responsible for deploying that software and making sure it goes out to all of the servers and then they watch those servers making sure that they continually run that software you know they also might have roles related to scaling right so like they might be responsible for you know making sure that if there's like a, a peak season or a peak hour that the AWS stuff goes up instead of down like you know you add more servers to the pool um, so and I don't know. That, to me, that's what it is. I mean, DevOps is not really a job, if you ask me, right? It's a culture, right? And it's about uh, working together with people in more collaborative ways that sort of break down barriers. Um, typically, developers and system administrators never work together. They would just kind of throw things at each other. And DevOps, you know, kind of... Uh, seen out of you know the bay area uh, initially right and uh, in some uh, in my uh, ugh, <laughs> can't speak uh, so some in uh, you know the washington area with microsoft um you know people started working closer together they had embedded system administrators working with development teams and you know the system administrators were called operations engineers so you know they worked together and it was called DevOps. It wasn't a job title. It was just something that team did. So um, it's not really a job title. So I'm sort of disappointed that, you know, there's so many jobs out there that, that are like that. So SecOps, right, is the same thing, but you add security folks to your mix, right? So security isn't typically involved with DevOps operations. Um, Security is where you, uh, with SecOps is where you have embedded security people that are working and sometimes even automating the security necessities of the day to day. So, in my role at, um, in my role when I did SecOps work, I, you know, I spent a lot of time working with the DevOps people to secure what they were doing, and then I built automated ways of checking to make sure that those things were set up the way they were supposed to be set up, um, and we did continuous monitoring um, and and basically. Um, you know, you know, we're spot checks for the, the folks like, you know, it's really useful for a developer or for a operations engineers to have just someone that they can go talk to quickly. Like, hey, I um, I'm running into the situation. Is this secure? Am I doing this right? Um, SecOps is basically, again, the uh, implementation of people in a cultural setting. Um, I think if anything, I was like a security engineer, uh, you know, at the end of the day. But the, the role is SecOps, and that's what it says on my resume. So, <laughs> But uh, if that helps uh, explain the difference between the two. So I want to um, go back to penetration testing. Mm. Um, so was there, I know I already asked this about cybersecurity, but what got you interested in penetration testing specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I always really liked sort of like the, I don't know, the hacker culture, I guess, if you will, um, ever since I was like a kid. Um, but... You know, again, I never thought I could really do it as a job up until, you know, the last few years. You know, when um, Equifax happened, the Equifax breach, we saw like a huge adoption of cybersecurity programs and investments in uh, the industry. So we saw like the development of programs that, that never existed before in schools. We saw new roles opening up for people and businesses started to actually investigate and see the benefit 
of pen testing, especially in smaller organizations. Now, pen testing has always been sort of like mega insurance companies, like really, really big global operations or even state departments. They would have pen testers like testing uh, infrastructure just to determine if it's safe. Um, that really wasn't for the common person. And, you know, up until a few, like, Know, 10 years now uh, coming up um you know we didn't really see uh we didn't really see an adoption or a, a need for that in the industry but now it's like it's like an outpouring like everybody wants this um but uh yeah so oh gosh <laughs> but uh yeah so for pen testing i i always kind of wanted to do it and i saw a pathway eventually at some point in my career where i was like okay a system administrator i think i could probably spin this. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of looked for ways to grow in security and then ultimately, you know, go into offsec, uh, which is like pen testing, again, offensive review of security. So it's been, um, it's been a goal for a while. So I'm, I'm, I'm just here eventually, eventually I made it. So, <laughs> but I've always been sort of, you know, I, I would say non-professionally sort of involved in reviewing security and, you know, using uh, using things in ways that they were never intended for. And that's really kind of like what hacking is, right? You know, using technology in ways that was never really developed for. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's always been like, it's been part of who I am and it's just sort of aligned work-wise now. So, um, but yeah, so that's how I kind of got into it. So I know you mentioned the um, Equifax breach and it seems like, pretty much every day there's some sort of new breach or new vulnerability being um, written about and published. So as a pen tester, how do you stay on top of these new, um, all the all the latest news in cybersecurity? Lots of caffeine. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I really turn to is like my day-to-day is um, the SANS Internet Storm Center, they have like a daily podcast. It's like 10, 15 minutes long. And they highlight sort of the top level things that you need to be worried about. They also like highlight trends. Like, so like if a botnet is out scanning for a new thing that maybe it's a vulnerability that's known about, but isn't necessarily public or, you know, publicized in any sort of sense, you can kind of get those early tremor warnings through um, those kinds of sources. I think that's probably my favorite, but, you know, usually I'm reading um, industry articles that come my way. Um, I have, like, feeds um, that I, I pay attention to that, that are, like, sort of a combined set of things. But, you know, in those feeds, you get, like, 20, 30 articles per day about something, right? And if you look at the, the, the MITRE CV list, right, you are, if you look at that every day, you're going to be overwhelmed with just the amount of stuff that's coming out. So, um, but yeah, so I think for me, it's like the SANS Internet Storm Center is amazing because it allows you to kind of like get that bite-sized thing in the morning, have it with my coffee, and that helps me out a lot, so. But yeah, so that's that's kind of uh, that's that's how I get my uh, my uh, up to date knowledge. In case this came up, I did write down the acronyms because I can never remember it. But it's common vulnerabilities and exploits, um, which you just mentioned, otherwise known as its acronym CVE. So I know that you have published a few of these actually. So what is it like finding and then publishing these vulnerabilities for the cybersecurity community? 
Um, yeah, it's it's actually so cool. So if you think about like vulnerability scanners, just generally, um, you know, they operate under the the knowledge typically that there are CVEs, right? And most of them, like Qualys, um, a good commercial offering that you might see out in the marketplace, you know, they have basically these big databases of all the CVEs and then markers for what those those typically consist of. And sometimes it's just uh, Qualys goes in and it checks the version. And if a version matches a certain version that also has a CVE, you know, they flag it for a vulnerability. And those vulnerability scanners are not possible without, you know, CVE lists. So uh, publishing CVEs is kind of crazy how long it takes, like, um, you know, from the finding and then reporting it to the the company, to the company actually closing that and fixing it, sometimes can be anywhere between um, uh, a year to sometimes two years. So you'll have vulnerabilities like, you know, people won't necessarily know about that have kind of like sitting out in uh, places that haven't really been discovered and may not be discovered unless those uh, things go into that database. So, um, and those are really sort of like, when you think about pen testing and you think about ways of doing privilege escalation, uh, a lot of these things, these vulnerabilities that we we use are just like undocumented pieces of how computers are configured these days. Um, submitting that, basically submitting a vulnerability like to them is like documenting what that is, right? Getting in touch with the vendor. And then depending on depending on which way uh, the vendor is listed. Because basically, so MITRE has these things called uh, uh, CNAs, right? And they are issuers of uh, vulnerabilities. So like Microsoft, for example, they have the ability to issue their own CVEs because they're a big corporation and they've listed themselves with MITRE. But not all companies are like that. You know, the mom and pop shop that runs the basic software, you know, down the way, they don't have... um, they don't have any affiliation with MITRE. So, um, you know, it could be that you're working with Microsoft to open that CV and they open it for you, or you work with MITRE, who will actually then help you uh, essentially list the CVE, provided that they you follow their templates and their guidance, and then you kind of go through the process of getting that published um, and then getting that listed and then just kind of going through their whole rigmarole. Um, the thing that's sort of disappointing, I think, overall with CVEs is that again they take so long to get the to get the stuff out to folks. Like the, but it's also confusing. It's hard to go through this process. There's a lot of knowledge in pockets. Like, like you know, you might have like a really good piece of knowledge about, let's say, like how to work with MITRE, but you know, you might not have any knowledge around how to work with a vendor and what you're legally allowed to do. There's really no good advice for that. Um, so, um, yeah, so it's, 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 it's confusing. So, but, um, I actually, actually have, um, uh, actually I've worked with, um, cause I, I feel like this is a problem that we can solve, right? So I've worked with, um, packet publishing and I'm actually going to be publishing a book with them in uh, January. And it's specifically kind of meant to address that. It's called the Vulnerability Researcher's Handbook. And it kind of helps people understand what does that process actually look like? Like not only how to structure your research and organize it, but it's also how do you get it to the people? Like, and what are you responsible for? So um, hopefully that will make the, the scenario a little bit better for folks. But um, but yeah, so uh, uh, but it's confusing. <laughs> CVs are definitely, um, th- th- there's there's a lot of 
there's a lot of uh, uh, you know landmines that you have to navigate uh, for sure sometimes. So, so from what I can gather, it sounds like there's a lot of writing that goes into penetration testing. Like you, you're writing a book about it, and I also heard you mention it earlier. So, just how much writing goes into one report? Well. Um, so for me, I, I think it, it really depends on like how you're like set up operationally. So, um, so as a pen tester, the things that you're going to find generically are all sort of the same. There's really no mysteries there. Um, vulnerabilities typically have like categories and they have typical causes and they have typical resolutions, right? So there's, there's not a lot of mystery there. So a lot of folks, what they do is they kind of template those sort of um, vulnerability write-ups, I think the descriptions of that. The thing that really is unique to each vulnerability is like the recreation steps. So you have to document very clearly um, how you actually recreate something. Um, but the, the writing, gosh, there's there the, the thing that really consumes a lot of my time is the notes. So operationally, a good pen tester will document everything that they kind of do. Like, so if I'm going to test something, I will write a little note in my operations log saying I did this test and then I'll capture evidence about this, right? And that evidence will will consist of a screenshot, um, a text file, something like that. Um, And that takes a lot of time, you know? Uh, So we try to automate stuff where we can. So we're already taking a bunch of notes. So um, we sort of like automate the vulnerability descriptions typically, right? Um, you can use software for that. Like PlexTrack is like a good a- example of pen testing software that kind of like operationalizes that. I use something called AttackForge um, personally, which is really cool. And um, yeah, so if you can automate that, you just have the notes and then you have like an executive summary, which is usually like one or two pages that sort of talks about what you found, um, you know, what needs to be uh, fixed uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and, you know, what your overall, you know, takeaway for the team is. So, but um, yeah, it can be a lot of writing, but if you do it along the way, it can really save you a lot of time. And the way you do that is by taking lots of notes, um, document, uh, documenting along the way. There's I think with pen testing, there's there's so many interesting things for you to test and explore that it's easy to not document things. So, but it really kind of hampers your your ability to write a good report after the fact if you don't document what you're doing. So, um, but yeah, a lot of writing. But I'm kind of used to it at this point. <laughs> but if you don't like writing, probably don't do pen testing. <laughs> so yeah. Um, what kinds of other tools are you using? Whether they help you write these reports or actually assist you in performing the penetration test? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, a common, I would say like the the, the day-to-day tool that I'm using every day um, when I'm doing testing is is Burp Suite, which is um, from Portswicker. It's a, it's a web application like proxy tool and basically allows you to intercept uh, HTTP requests as they kind of go through the wire um, and it allows you to manipulate those and replay them and do, do some really cool stuff. That's something that I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, using. Like, I would say most of my time, like, I would say 80% of my time is in Burp Suite because there's just so much that you can do with it, um, especially with web applications. But it depends. Like, so if you're not using a web application, if you're not testing a web application, you might go with something else. You might need to actually look at, you know, um, reversing some software by, like, decompiling it, um, 
like with Ida, uh, or f- for example, um, or Ghidra uh, as an option. But um, but for tools, I would say most of my time is in uh, Burp Suite. Uh, I use Kali Linux sometimes, you know, just because it's ha- it has a bunch of tools that you need if you're doing some sort of network type assessment. Um, but outside of that, I don't I don't use anything too crazy. Um, and and sometimes you need to write your own tools. It really it just depends on what you're testing because if you're testing something really unique and strange, you might actually there might not be a tool that will help you with that. So you need to actually create your own test case scenario and then write your own tool, typically with Python because I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so sometimes you write your own tools. But but yeah, those are the tools I typically use. So um, if you know how to write Python, it's a good skill to have. So. What are some uh, other skills that penetration testers should have? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, so uh, penetration testers should try to avoid bias where possible. And that's like one of the things that I think you have to be really cognizant of as, as you test, right? You have to try to leave your assumptions at the door. Um if you kind of walk into a, a test, like I try to walk into a test every every time, brand new. I don't know anything about this. I'm not going to make any assumptions. We're just going to, you know, assume that, you know, I don't know anything about this. I'm not making assumptions. Um, that's really hard for people to do. I think it's hard for me sometimes too. So I have to check my own like assumptions checking. So it's, you know, kind of coming in with sort of an unbiased point of view. Um, is is hard for some people. So that's like one, I would say, soft skill. Another thing that you have to be really decent at, I don't know, I'm okay, but like you have to be good at communication. Um, when you do your pen test, it's not you just, you just go do a pen test. You have to talk to the people first, right? And you have to get a good understanding of what they need tested first. So you scope that pen test. So that's like a big part of it, right? And then you execute. And then afterwards, you have to talk to developers. You have to talk to uh, people who are in exec- executive roles, people who are in business roles. You have to be able to communicate a message clearly to a very diverse audience, which can be challenging. So, um, you know, communication is like a big thing. So I don't know, it's, um, pen testers are like hard to find and hard to hire for. It's like you're, you need someone who's like really, really, uh, technically, uh, like, you know, smart about uh, either, you know, development or operations. You need to have a communication skills and you also need to be like, you know, very unbiased and clear minded. It's just like a hard set of skills. I think sometimes I hire for, but, um, but yeah, so like the, I think for 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 pen testers, you know, being very uh, clear communicator is like a huge thing. I've seen I've seen pen t- testers that you know who are brilliant, but they don't succeed because they can't get their message to the audience. Um, and if you can't do that, like you know, what good is the report? What good is the um, what good is the content? So um, communication is so, a big one. As a manager. Are you looking for soft skills more than technical ones? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say so. I, I'm also looking for people who are who are actively engaged in some capacity. So, like, if you're like, um, you know, a good example these days is like I see a lot of this on resumes. Is like people are engaging with the like the try hack me uh, if they want to get into pen, pen testing or they're doing hack the box. Those are really good labbing things that I like seeing from folks. But the thing that I really like seeing from folks is like, if you have any technical skills or you don't even have to have pen testing background, if you have some sort of experience that shows that you've done testing on real applications, like stuff that's out there, because try hack me, there's always going to be a solution to that. 
uh, pen testing, not so much, right? You're going to hit like a lot of walls over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's really easy to get disheartened by that. Um, so I've seen pen testers who are uh, junior pen testers who, you know, they love those lab environments and they've, they've, they've worked with them and they, they love getting the root flag. But, you know, when they actually test real things, it kind of like, like it bums them out. Right. So, um, you know, f- for that, like, I, I love seeing like, you know, some technical, uh, uh, you know, interest in that. But if you have like CVEs or if you worked on bug bounties or something like that, it shows to me that you have failed many times at working on real applications um, and that you're interested, right? So that's always a good thing. But um, soft skills, yes, typically looking for those. Um, I would say I have a preference for um, software development backgrounds on resumes simply because I I'm not a software developer <laughs> and I, and I want someone to like diversify my own skill set. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so, but operations though, if you have like an operations background, some sort of technical knowledge there, that's always a, a huge plus. So, but I, I guess you could say both, I would say, you yeah, know, but, um, and it, and it depends too. Like if they're not a great communicator, that might be okay. If, um, you know, they're really smart and they can do really good work. Maybe we don't put them in front of customers. <laughs> Maybe we, we do something else there, but, but it's, it's hard, you know, the talent crunch is here, you know, um, and it's, it's hard to find folks. So sometimes it's about, you know, finding, you know, the person that's probably the right person for the right at the right time, you know, and bringing that person and letting them grow. So, you know, sometimes. So, uh, what's a bug bounty? I, you just uh, mentioned that. Um, yeah, so a bug bounty is typically there are programs run by uh, companies uh, who have like responsible disclosure programs, and they may partner with some uh, company like Bug Crowd or Hacker One. These are popular bug bounty uh, programs where basically um, you're authorized to test a certain scope of like. I'll give you a good example. Amazon, right? They have an e-commerce platform. You know, you go there, maybe you shop for things. Um, you're allowed to, as as a as a person, to go to that website and do like hackery things to it and like try to break it. Um, and if you find something, that's that's great. Amazon wants wants you to report it, and they'll pay you for that. So if you have a successful report that actually causes some sort of risk to the organization, um, you can go to these uh, bug bounty programs and say. Hey, you know, um, I found this, um, you know, pay me <laughs> basically. Um, but, uh, some people make it their whole life livelihood. They spend a hundred percent of their time doing bug bounties, um, which is, which is great. Um, good. I really, I'm happy for certain folks, but you know, the, the, the people that I see do that are grinding super hard. It's, it's hard to make a living off of bug bounties. Um, but it's a good thing to do if you have the time and you want, like if nobody's giving you a job and you want to prove to somebody that you can do something, <clears throat> bug bounties, great way to do that. So, so it sounds like it's kind of difficult to get into penetration testing as a career. So what would you recommend someone that is interested in penetration testing and wants to see if it's the right career for them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think probably that one of the, the best things to do is, you know, you know, start in technology, something that you're interested in. Uh, you know, I think pen testing is like usually not a first step on someone's career, right? Pen testing sort of is the culmination of an expertise in some area that you then bring a security focus to, um, typically. Um, 
with that said, I have seen people who who go into pen testing roles in their first, you know, year or something right out of college. Um, there's definitely a, a there's a there's a need for pen testing. So a lot of employees are making concessions there. But um, I would say that you know, for most folks, um, you know, get into something that you like and learn as much as you can about it. Uh, try to become an expert, and then go do something else, and then learn about that, and then you know. Spend some time doing bug bounties. Spend some time looking at all the amazing resources that are out there. I mean, if you want to learn about pen testing, I, I tell people this all the time. If you want to pen test, go pen test. You can do that as a as a security researcher today. You can go find CVEs. You can go do these bug bounties. Just go do it. If you if you're good at it, you're they're gonna, they're gonna want you to keep doing it but the people that are really really good at it are the people who understand how the technology works on the back end so doing roles where you learn how that technology works is a really big um thing that you need sometimes to be i think an effective pen tester so it's not just you run an automated tool and it does the work for you you have to actually understand how everything is working yeah that i mean you could run an automated tool um and that would give you something maybe sometimes right but um it's really about understanding that because those automated tools most times with most software those automated tools have already been run against that software and those obvious like easy pickings have already been you know picked if you will so um you know Sometimes it's about kind of diving a little bit deeper, learning how something uh, functions, and you know, breaking it at a, at a at a different level. So, yeah, and automation tools can be tuned to be more effective. It's just it just depends. Like you know, like a, a really popular penetration testing tool that I see a lot of people running like out of the box with like capture the flags is a uh, SQL map, right? SQL map is is like um, is okay uh, for for what it is, but you know, without tuning, without an understanding of what's actually happening on the application, that sort of like sort of deep knowledge, you might just run it and you might say, I don't, "Well, this is as good as it gets." Right? You only know what you know. So um, if you don't know a whole lot about how things operate or how things you know technically work, you might not be as effective as a tester. So I know that you are currently employed by um, Trinity Health, and you've also worked in industries outside healthcare. How different is it working for a healthcare industry than, say, like you know, a finance, a financial institution, or anything uh, different? Yeah, I mean, so it, you get paid a lot less money. <laughs> um, uh, but, but in all seriousness, um, you know. There are there are advantages and disadvantages to working at startups, to working at like large corporate organizations, to working for finance companies. But like I would say, like the the contrast and compare between finance and healthcare, gosh, it's night and day. Um, finance has a ton more money to do a lot more fun stuff with technology, and they usually have well funded, um, good security departments. Healthcare does not, right? If you think about healthcare, just generally, hospitals, healthcare, everything, right? If you go to a hospital and you see a doctor, do you want to, like, let's say maybe you're getting a surgery. Do you want to get like a surgery from one of the best surgeons in the area? Or do you want to get the one that's kind of okay? Like, <laughs> like you know, they have only had a few medical malpractice lawsuits, right? <laughs> no, you really want, you want the, you want the good one, right? You want the person uh, that, that, that has the qualifications that, that has done the residencies. And what 
healthcare systems do is they hire those people and they pay top dollar to get those people in the hospital. So hospitals spend a ton of money just on their medical talent alone. And and that's especially true for nurses now because nurses have had, you know, through the whole pandemic, they've been so burned out with just working a lot more, um, seeing a lot of death, seeing a lot of, you know, trauma that, you know, they, they, they you know, they, they've either left or they go into like a traveling nurse position <clears throat> where they get, get you know, paid more money. So there's been a lot of like uh, financial challenges with paying that stuff. So you have all that, right? And then you have the needs for IT and just technical operations. <clears throat> Excuse me, frog in my throat. Um, so you have the, those needs for technical operations. And so back when uh, uh, Barack Obama was president, there was the uh, the Health Care Act, the uh, American Medical, oh God, is AMA? I, I don't know, <laughs> the Affordable Care Act, ACA. Um, so one of the things about that legislation that a lot of people don't realize is that it actually instituted that uh, medical records should be used in a certain way that's like federally regulated, um, and then it also it also affected how hospitals got reimbursed from Medicare, which is like a huge thing. So the government pays a lot of like like older folks they're on retired they're retired right they get healthcare uh, payouts. F- uh, from Medicare as the the Social Security, you know, insurance program, whatever. Um, but uh, unless hospitals invested in these healthcare technologies, they would not get the same kinds of payouts. So what hospitals had to do, they were already sort of struggling with needing, like, getting good technology in their systems because they just didn't have the money for it. They also had this new thing that they needed to do. They needed to buy all this EMR stuff and they needed to make sure that every doctor had a laptop. And, uh, and you know, you guys are young, younger, but, you know, when I was like younger, when I went to the doctor, they would just show up and there would be maybe some paper charts or something like that. You know, there would be not many computers. Now they're like in every room and it's because it's required, right? Um, so, so you have all those expenses and then, okay, now you have to secure it, right? So <laughs> then you have that expense as well. And at that time, you know, there's sometimes like hospitals say, you know, we're going to do the best that we can. They can't hire necessarily top talent. They can't necessarily um, get the best tools. Um, and, and they, and, you know, it's, it's not, it's just not as good. I think sometimes like, you know, money wise for, for security professionals, the reason I love it, the reason I like it so much is that it's a, it makes a difference, right? Um, there's so much wrong with like, uh, healthcare and the the healthcare systems that are being used today. And unless somebody does something about it, like it's never going to get any better. So, um, you know, I'm partially motivated to stay, you know, in healthcare simply because there's just such a big need for it. Um, And I feel like I'm doing work that matters. You work for a bank. I'm not saying that not working for a bank doesn't matter, but, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, you know, balance sheets and, you know, uh, you know, ones and zeros really at the end of the day, you know, uh, it, it doesn't feel like you're connected to anything that really actually impacts somebody. Um, we're in healthcare, you know, you're actually securing the software that like might be used in an operation on somebody or, you know, a, a big thing that I just recently tested and I can't really talk about uh, what what's there, but um, is um, software related to how um, you know blood results like and like a 
chemistry results from labs, like so, so they take your blood or urine or something like that. You know, they get processed at like a uh, a lab. You know, you know, we tested systems that you know are completely insecure, like completely insecure, and they they are leaking like social security numbers, and they have all these horrible things, and like people just don't know about that because it hasn't been tested. Um, so I, I think I'm in a unique position where Trinity Health has seen like value in penetration testing, but they also can't really spend a whole lot of money on it, but they want to invest. So um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I feel like you're making sort of a difference. I don't know. So and it, you can work for for profit companies with good missions. Like that's that's a good thing. I worked at IDEX, which um, which is great. They're like focused on pet health and everything. But at the end of the day, right, um, you know, sometimes like with healthcare. You know, they'll go the extra mile to make sure that things are fixed because patient patients matter. Whereas, um, you know, in some and again, I'm not saying that this is the case, so don't sue me, IDEX. Um, you know, you might uh, might sometimes people uh, people see security risk as an acceptable risk, um, and sometimes I think accepting risk is um, dangerous and and can harm people. And I've seen it harm people. So um, I think healthcare is unique in a way where you know, focuses on patients and, and there's so much work to do. So I would, I would say anybody work in healthcare. It's so cool. So, so I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that in addition to being a penetration tester, you are also the founder of DC 207. Could you explain to us uh, what DC 207 is and what it's about? Yeah. So um, DC 207 uh, is a local hacker meetup group. So uh, every year in Las Vegas for the last 30 years or so, um, there's been a conference called DEFCON, right? And um, <laughs> and uh, so the, the, the conference is, uh, you know, largely attended by hackers. And basically, it's a lot of passionate people coming together to kind of explore security in, I would say, unique and sometimes subversive ways, right? So... I, I, after my first DEFCON, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, and, uh, you know, I kept on thinking to myself, like, I really wish like there was like more of this. And I think one, at one point, uh, in, in my DEFCON going days, I went to a, a talk, um, on a Sunday and it was a panel. It was about how to run a DEFCON group. And basically it was just like these people talking about how they run these, they're called DCGs or DEFCON groups or Anyways, they run these these groups and, you know, how it's been great for them because they connect with people locally who also have similar passions. And maybe they don't get out to Vegas. Maybe that's not really their thing. Um, but they like to connect with other people about this sort of common interest. And people said, oh, yeah, you know, there's there's probably one in your area. And I, was, I went home and I looked, looked it up and there wasn't. <laughs> or there was one. It was It had been dead for years, though. So I was like... Ah, well, I had been, and you know, Maine is great. There's lots of like little uh, technology meetups, but I always felt like there was like a real heavy sales focus. Like there's a real heavy like commercial thing. And I knew like at the end of the day, most people, most professionals, they don't want to go and like sit in a conference room and watch a sales presentation. Like that's not really engaging. And that's why like a lot of those uh, things are sparsely populated by people who just need to get credits for a certification or something like that. Um, I wanted to create something that is sort of, again, creates um, opportunities for people to connect with each other and have fun and like 
do stuff. So um, I, I was like, well, let's do it. We'll, we'll create it. So uh, DC 207 is basically uh, the DEF CON group for Maine. And I founded it again, like going on five years now. So um, uh, back then, and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I, I know a little bit more now, but <laughs> um, about what makes a good event. But yeah, so basically, I'm the organizer, and that sort of involves like finding things for people to do. Um, you know, uh, f- finding sometimes funding uh, related to what we we're going to be doing, um, and yeah, just kind of like organizing stuff, uh, and you know getting people together, which is so fun. Like, I, I really love it. Like, I've seen over the years, like, just so many people, like, who had, like, the, the sort of the itch for, like, in, or interest in information security, like, come to these meetups, get connected with people, and then get into jobs. Like, I've seen this, like, sort of repeatedly over the years, like, maybe, like, a dozen people. And it's just, like, so cool. I don't know. So I've I've been doing it ever since, but we, we meet here in... Maine and various locations every third Thursday, typically, unless there's something, there's something like a holiday or something like that. Um, and yeah, so we, we meet up and we, we do fun things. Sometimes capture the flag. Sometimes we do hands-on things. Sometimes it's talks, you know, sometimes we just get together and like hang out. Um, it, it just, uh, it just depends. So, but yeah, so that, that's what DC 207 is. And, uh, we've been doing it for a while now. So, but yeah. And we're now starting to uh, meet at USM, which is amazing, actually, because, um, you know, USM has such a great cyber program. Um, it's nice to have, like, a sort of a built-in student population as well. So, um, again, allows us to kind of connect, I would say, seasoned professionals with people who are just getting started. And that's really cool. So if – well, I already try to go to the events when I can, but – if somebody wanted to attend these events or find more information about DC 207, uh, where would you point them to? Sure. Um, you can go to our website. Uh, it's a good place. Uh, uh, DC207.org. Um, that's a good place to go. Um, we also are on Twitter. Uh, I try to be as active as I can on there. Uh, DCG, is it T- DCG207 um, on Twitter. So uh, if you read the Twitter feeds, I'll, I'll post things about like, uh, workshops that we have coming up or things that I've imported that we're going to be playing with um, or, you know, I'll, I'll do like little sneak peeks and then we'll post all the events on the actual website where you can kind of go and see uh, what's going on and um, what, what what's next, essentially. All right. So I'm going to uh, pass the mic over to Tom, who's going to be going through the pull from headlines. So we got two different headlines that we wanted to go over with you mm-hmm. that we pulled from the news. Uh, the first one pertains to um, the employment issue in the cybersecurity field. And as someone that has, you know, managing experience, you know, we hope to get your take on that. And then the second headline we have is about a breach that was uh, that happened to Telstra Telecom. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping to get any of your thoughts on that as well. So to start off, the, the first um, headline... Uh, talks about how there's a big cybersecurity skill shortage and how a lot of uh, CIOs have been saying that there is a you know a talent war going on. This was pulled from uh, fedscoop.com and kind of some of the key uh, takeaways we took from it was um, that number one, there's estimated that there's going to be 39,000 vacant jobs and um, you know, that's Obviously, looking at looking at that number at face value is very staggering. And additionally, we were hoping to get your thoughts on you know 
as someone who hires people, is do you struggle with finding potential candidates? You know, is that something that, you know, when you're planning out your week, planning out your year, you're like, this is going to be a, a big, a big milestone, a big issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So, yeah, uh, you know the the cyber the cyber talent war. <laughs> it's it's really something, and it it sort of echoes like the talent war that we've seen in technology, where you know we have startups like kind of yanking people from different you know organizations, offering them you know crazy benefits and things like that. And we've really seen that, like, I think with, uh, like, pen testers, with uh, analysts, for even people who work in SOCs, like uh, security operation centers, um, you know, people with experience are just, like, you know, high-value commodity. Um, I think I, I, I've read a similar uh, piece that was uh, about um, the Department of Homeland Security and how they have been, like, hemorrhaging people and losing opportunities to just keep folks keep folks engaged and it's uh, you know they say it's uh, money and i think that's definitely part of it but um you know there's also there wasn't like a lot of opportunities for folks but um i see it you know for for these open positions though a lot of times they are for senior roles right so organizations have problems like complex problems and they might not, they might have been caught in the crossfire of this war, right? And their top people have left and they need top people to come in and like direct the, the, the flow of things. So, you know, a lot of this like you know, sniping back and forth and, and, and the open roles that exist now are for senior roles, people who have had uh, experience already, which is disheartening, I think, because, um, you know, there's, there's only so many cybersecurity professionals, right? That only have so much experience. Um, we need to kind of, I think, as a as a as a as a community, try to figure out how to onboard folks. You know, I I see so much like opportunity and like taking like maybe an intern or something and like you know rolling them into some sort of role in my own organization, um, just to kind of again provide good value to that organization because might pay less and but but there's opportunity for growth not only for um that organization but also the person they're employing and that's that's i think that means a lot to folks right you know like a company investing in me like you know that's very cool but yeah i know this the 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 talent war is is real um and uh you know i with healthcare like i said you know we don't pay the most and you know for that you know there are people who can make you know 20 30 percent more easily you know in a for-profit organization so we find it's very difficult to get qualified candidates especially for actually have an open position right now for a penetration tester uh, with one year of experience impossible to find uh someone who is even interested in it (laughs) which is is, which is really tough so um you know i think we as a, a a community need to be more accepting and open to new folks and try to train those people up and invest in them because there's yeah the qualified folks are are not findable and i feel bad for organizations that don't have leadership uh that um that that recognize that or maybe don't have the ability to hire junior people to train like if they were missing their top people and that that's the truth like i've seen that with other organizations and i've seen people like oh i'm feeling bad because i'm leaving an organization that i'm their only security guy it's like oh that sucks but like maybe they should have more than one security guy too (laughs) so i don't know it's part of partly leadership partly 
partly self-inflicted wounds at sometimes I think too. So, so I mean, like to some extent, it kind of seems like that statistic is a little misleading because it's not 39,000 unfulfilled jobs. It's 39,000 or at least the vast majority of that is senior roles and experience that's needed. Not just anyone can walk onto it. Exactly. And those roles are not usually paid very well. That's a lot of times one of the reasons that we see people not going into those roles is like, well, I can work in, you know, I can work in the Bay Area remotely even now because of the pandemic, right? Lots of folks have the ability to work remote. I can work remote and I can make, you know, I can make this, I can make, you know, sometimes even twice as much, right? Um, with you know the same amount of stress right and like i'm a human being like why would i not why would i not do that right but um i think you know for for folks it's um who are in that space and they're 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 in the cyber war and they're they're thinking about what they want to do with their lives i think there's a certain point where there's like okay there's a certain amount of money that you need to make to like live and enjoy life and um i think you can attain that easily with cybersecurity. i think it's really really important to find like what resonates with you um i don't know for me it's like healthcare. so but yeah the, i would say most of them are you know senior roles like for the most part so and that that's that's hard because I know like a lot of students here that there's so many open jobs in this thing. And it's like, oh yeah, but only like a small percentage of them are actually like junior or people are open for these junior roles, which is, uh, I would be disappointed <laughs> personally. Right. So. There's definitely a big concern of mine. So, you know, with, with this talent war, you know, of course the idea of poaching and, and stealing employees comes up, you know, mm-hmm. so first and foremost, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this? And is this something you've had to deal with, um, yeah, I, I can't say that I've had to personally deal with the poaching, thankfully. Um, yeah, no, I, I would say that I, I don't have to, I don't I don't get to see that too often. So, um, but, I, you know, I've heard stories, I've heard like, you know, I've heard stories, but it's like, you know, it's a free market, right? We're, we're in America, right? We're capitalists, right? So, <laughs> you know, if, if a company has the money, they want to pay for that talent, um, and they're willing to woo that talent, um, you know, that's just the way it works sometimes. So um, I think uh, I would say to folks, uh, if you're being wooed by another company, just make sure it's not a competitor and you don't have some sort of agreement with your own company <laughs> about, you know, your ability to work. Sometimes uh, companies will make you sign agreements that say uh, you can't work for a competitor which we will decide who is a competitor at any given time, right? Um, you can't work for a competitor for up to one year after leaving our organization. And those are legally binding contracts that most most people just sign when they get hired. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something you kind of want to be aware of, I guess, if you are getting poached, if you're out there getting poached. But, um, yeah, so that's my that's my take on that. <laughs> well, you know, we really appreciate that, and, and I think you had some great, great insight there. The, the second article we pulled down was from uh, Cybersecurity News. And, you know, as I previously mentioned, it was uh, a data breach that was suffered by uh, Telstra Telecom. You know, that's, of course, you know, one of the largest telecommunication companies in Australia. And, you know, they disclosed that they were part of this breach recently. And it was through a, through a third party. So they were using a platform called WorkLife NAB or NAB. And, you know, they're no longer using it, but this caused this breach and the information disclosed was first and last names and email addresses used to sign up for their uh, employee rewards program you know in your opinion or as your experience you know, geez, 
in your experience as a penetration tester, have you seen incidents similar to this? You know, has this been something you've experienced? Yeah, so um, this is 100% like what I see with uh, a lot of organizations. So that telecom company may have wanted or needed a service from NAB. And what a great <laughs> acronym for what happened, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, you know, what, what companies often do is they, they think that sometimes they're transferring risk to another company by paying them to, to do these services. But what often ends up being the case, if you're not vetting and you're verifying and understanding the risk that own company you know, is, is provides to you and your customers, because you know, I'm sure that uh, the telecom company says, oh, well, it's not technically us. It's just a thing that we were affiliated with and we were paying with. The people will not see a difference, right? They're going to see, oh, I got, you know, screwed by a telecom company or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I see a lot of organizations doing that. And I think, you know, in, in my own experience of healthcare, I see this a lot too, where it's like, you know, you pay a company and it's sort of a black box. And if you think about like how companies operate, right, software in general, the, their goal is to sell you a product, right, um, that a software engineer makes, right? And software engineers are like security engineers are expensive, right? And they need to basically deliver the, the, the MVP or the minimum viable product. If they can do that and sell that for as, as much as they need to sell it for, that's great. And usually that's where things stop as far as security goes. Um, and that's really what I've seen at least. So my own health court organization, we, the way that we've been combating that is by, you know, assessing risk with vendors, which is really important. But we're also now incorporating penetration testing in third-party vendors that don't have penetration tests. So, you know, for us, what we're looking at is, uh, you know, if, if the company offers a service that ingests certain sets of data, maybe that's PII or maybe it's uh, financial information, maybe it's contract information related to like healthcare providers, you know, that's even though we're transferring that risk to someone else, uh, we need to evaluate and need to understand wh- who we're giving our data to. Um, and I think a lot of companies, they feel like safe like, in, in a way just because they're like, we're paying for this problem to go away. And it's like, uh, maybe, maybe you're just paying for a black box that you can't see into. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's a it's an interesting situation for sure. So you know, it kind of seems like you know, for people that might not be involved in cybersecurity every day, that this is a good example or a good uh, warning that just because the person they're doing business or the company they're doing business with, you know, they think is secure, doesn't mean that the third party, you know, platforms and modules they're using are also secure. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've been seeing it as a pattern as we, we've been testing my own organization, we've been testing software, you know, it's, it's absolutely shocking, actually, what you can see for companies that set up these software companies that are just sort of, you know, smaller, and they offer these services, maybe like employee services or referral programs, or, you know, it just depends on what the organization wants to sort of abstract away from their own HR departments or their own, you know, operations teams, or finance teams, even. Um, It's it's absolutely shocking, actually, what what you can, what you can see. Um, And, it's it's kind of crazy that these smaller companies let us go in and test their stuff. I'm thankful that they do. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's. I think the way that you know, if if anyone, if they're interested in avoiding this kind of thing, is like 
make sure you have like some sort of risk assessment, you know, on these organizations so you understand, you know, do they do they use antivirus software? What do they use for their cloud? You know, you need to understand like do they do pen testing? What kind of security people do they have on staff? They don't have security staff. And a lot of these small startups, they don't. They have these like full stack developers and they have like five or six of them. And that's the, the core team. And they might be really great at developing software, but you're not always guaranteed a secure product, especially if it's not anything that they're specialized in. But you know, you have to you have to understand that risk. And then if you can get like if you have the ability to like practically look at something, that's a really good way to 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 do it. There are like public services that you can use, like like security scorecard, but I have my own reservations about security scorecard just generally. Um, and they can give you kind of like a, a scorecard of what that company looks like as like a company that scans the web for information about companies, but their information is not complete um, and is often inaccurate. So, you know, I would say that even if you're looking to abstract your understanding of the security away, you may also be sort of disappointed in uh, what you're paying for. So, so you know, obviously you mentioned you're in the penetration penetration testing role. Mm-hmm. You're not doing as much of the defensive operations, but you know, in your mind, is one kind of last takeaway. You know, after a breach like this, how could a company like Testra? Telstra, sorry, mm-hmm. you know, move forward from this? You know, what, what's the best practices to kind of recover from this type of incident? Yeah, uh, renew their cybersecurity insurance, <laughs> obviously. Um, but, you know, you know, it's hard, right? So if, if um, it's kind of going back to that, that conversation about risk, you need to understand what your third parties are doing. You need to understand what you're sending them and what your risk profile is for that. Um, so I would advise this telecom company to, you know, maybe take a quick look at what they're doing for risk assessments with third-party vendors and how they're setting that that up and you know do they actually understand what their risk is they may have and you know this is a this is a side that a lot of people you know don't like talking about um they may have understood this risk right they may have clearly understood this risk they may have deemed it acceptable because it was their employees and it was those people's email addresses or something. It was, it was employee data, right? Yeah, so it was. It yeah. was an, an internal employee rewards program. Right. So they may have felt like, well, you know, it's our own users, or it's our own employees. Maybe it's not such a big deal, mm-hmm. right? And that's where you go through, like, risk acceptance, which is sort of like a dark side of understanding risk. By understanding the risk, understanding the consequences, and choosing still to do that, and maybe saying, oh, well, we have the cybersecurity insurance, so if anything does happen, you know, and maybe, you know, they might not actually end up with any sort of, you know, repercussions because it's, you know, basic PII, not, not, nothing too uh, uh complex but like it just depends like on the laws of that country in the united states there's not really any good privacy laws um in the european union there's there are better um things that protect users but it's more along the lines of you know the right to be forgotten but i don't know i feel like like as a country like as a as a as a you know a, a body of people, we need to hold our own folks more accountable, right, for for how they're handling our data. And there's really not any good legislation that's out there that says, as a company, you need to protect your people's data w- using this and following these kinds of things. 
we just don't see that, right? We see that in healthcare a little bit with like health information, but for private information, it's sort of like the wild west and, you know, people, and that's, that's what sort of allows for these random companies to kind of come into existence, take all this data and, and be reckless with it. If we had maybe some more regulations around, um, you know, operating software services that might that might stifle some creativity, but it also might provide better outcomes for users um, and and companies generally. So, well, you know, we, we really appreciate you taking the time to you know join us. I think we you know covered some some really important topics, and you know, I really appreciate your insight you know on these. So, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>